This one's for all the arborists out there. This is the backdrop for Pomona Valley Church. Welcome to the backdrop. This is Curtis, as usual. Paul's getting agricultural with his metaphors in chapter 11 of Romans in a way that those familiar with the almond and peach orchards of the Central Valley of California will be quite comfortable with. Hello to our thousands, I'm guessing, of listeners from Chico. I, on the other hand, have a pretty limited knowledge of this topic, as proved by my dad having to literally point out which branches I ought to prune and where on them to prune them this past winter um, on our young peach peach trees in our backyard. But fear not, I don't think an arboreal degree is necessary to pick up Paul's point in this particular chapter. We're continuing the same line of thought that has been running throughout the third section of the letter, chapters 9 to 11, and Paul makes that abundantly clear from the jump that we are on the same line of thought. So here's the first verses of chapter 11. So I ask, has God abandoned his people? Certainly not. I myself am an Israelite. From the seed of Abraham and the tribe of Benjamin, God has not abandoned his people, the ones he chose in advance. Don't you know what the Bible says in the passage about Elijah, describing how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, he says, they have killed your prophets. They have thrown down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. But what was the reply from the divine word? I have left for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This section of the letter has a very elliptical feel to it. Paul keeps circling around the same topic and ideas. And as I've said on several occasions now, this question that he is mulling over was a really big deal for Paul in a way that it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. His family being seemingly passed over is confusing and troubling, to say the least. And if the answer to his opening question were yes, as in, yes, God has abandoned Israel, well, that would have been very troubling in its implications for whether we could trust this God at all. In response, Paul cites his own experience, being a Jew and now being a part of the family following Jesus. He also cites 1 Samuel 12, 22, in saying that, of course, God hasn't abandoned his people. That isn't what our God does. That isn't who our God is. The quotation comes from the story of Saul being chosen as the first king of Israel. Saul was also from the tribe of Benjamin, as Paul says of himself, and which might be why Paul quotes from this particular passage to make his point. Having said that he is from the tribe of Benjamin might have connected in his brain to this particular quotation from 1 Samuel. But Paul doesn't continue to dwell on that story. Instead, he turns to a story from the prophetic tradition, the story of Elijah, Paul often puts himself in the same line as the prophets, quoting liberally from Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and others. This story of Elijah comes in 1 Kings chapter 19. It's the story where Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a duel. They call on their God to send down fire, and Elijah will call on his God, and we'll see who wins, whose God comes through and sends the fire. It's the one where Elijah stands alone against hundreds on the side of Baal. And when Elijah's God, Yahweh, sends down fire, the people turn on the prophets of Baal and kill them. But the king and queen of Israel are not pleased. And Elijah has to flee for his life and ends up in the wilderness feeling lonely and hopeless. Israel has killed the prophets, ignored the word of God, and Elijah is alone. 
God visits him in a quiet whisper and reassures him that not only is he not alone because Yahweh is with him, he's not alone because God still has a remnant among Israel who have stayed faithful. Paul is saying that the same is true in his day. There is a remnant, himself included, who have seen what God is doing through Jesus, have put their trust in the grace that God has shown, and who have, through grace, been included in this new remnant. The idea of a remnant shows up consistently in the Old Testament, and it's natural for Jews in Paul's day to see a similar thing playing out before them. The heart of the disagreement, in fact, between some of the sects of Jews in the first century, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Zealots, for example, the difference between them was who they saw as being the true Israel. Who was the remnant today who had stayed faithful to the true God? Paul is giving his answer. It's the ones who have put their trust in Jesus which is, by the way, significantly different from those other groups for whom the remnant was defined by who was performing the right works to show that they were faithful, who had figured out the right things to be good Jews, showing that they were God's chosen people. Paul's definition is around grace. And Paul circles around again to the same sort of topic. But but why? Why didn't more of Israel believe in Jesus? Why is the remnant so darn small? So starting in verse 7, he says this, What then? Did Israel not obtain what it was looking for? Well, the chosen ones obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As the Bible says, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that wouldn't see and ears that wouldn't hear right down to the present day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a punishment for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they can't see and make their backs bend low forever. Paul's answer, again, is that the hearts of the rest have been hardened. Their eyes closed. Their ears stopped. These accusations are the very same ones that show up throughout the Old Testament prophets for why the people of their day didn't listen to what the prophets were saying, even though it was a true word from God. N.T. Wright says, Paul is drawing on the Jewish tradition that runs like this. When God delays outstanding judgment, those who do not use this time of delay to repent and turn back to him will be hardened so that their final judgment, when it does come, will be seen to be just. This apocalyptic context of hardening is vital. Ignoring it leads interpreters either into abstract discussions of predestination and reprobation or into the idea of a temporary hardening which is then reversed. So let's spend a little bit more time on this. Paul says later in this chapter that Israel is being hardened for a time until the fullness of the nations come into the family of God. Hardening is what happened to Pharaoh. It's what the prophets in the Old Testament accused Israel of, having a hard heart. Ezekiel calls it a heart of stone, for example. And Paul is picking up on these usages to make his own point, invoking the whole story of Israel and continuing it on into the present. Hardening has often been used in debates, like uh, N.T. Wright mentioned, over predestination, of God hardening hearts or not hardening hearts, and in that way, choosing some for salvation and condemning others. I thought N.T. Wright's perspective was interesting in this concept, though, and it points in a different direction than predestination. Um, This is something that we've mentioned here and there along the way, but this does allow us to give a fuller account of what's going on in Paul's thinking. Hardening, Wright says, is what happens when otherwise immediate judgment is postponed, but people do not avail themselves of the chance to repent and believe. Either the person comes to their senses, recognizes God's forbearance, and repents, or they are fitted the more fully for the judgment that will ensue. 
Think of Pharaoh in the Exodus story, for example. The Hebrew slaves belong to Yahweh God. Pharaoh has, therefore, wrongly imprisoned them. Moses comes with a message from Yahweh to let my people go. My people, not yours. Let them go. When Pharaoh refuses, God has every right to take the people by force. They are Yahweh's people, and Pharaoh has, in effect, stolen them, challenging Yahweh's claim to them, you might say. But Yahweh doesn't immediately bring judgment down on Pharaoh, but rather gives him a chance to reconsider and repent. Pharaoh does not repent. He hardens his heart. And eventually, judgment does fall, though even then, God doesn't come down as hard as is arguably warranted. Paul is saying that this is like that. Israel is in a hardening time, a time not when God is preventing them from repenting so that they might be consigned to judgment, but rather when God is, in their mercy, giving Israel time to reconsider, to believe, to come to their senses. Paul does not have any particular individuals in mind here whose eyes have been darkened and all the rest. He's speaking of the group as a whole who are characterized by unbelief. Why has that group not believed? Because they are characterized by their hardness of heart. But any individual within that group can always choose to change their mind, turn back, and believe. This is very different in this respect from being predestined as individuals to unbelief. Paul asks yet another question in the following verses, circling around again. So I ask then, have they tripped up in such a way as to fall completely? Certainly not. Rather, by their trespass, salvation has come to the nations in order to make them jealous. If their trespass means riches for the world and their impoverishment means riches for the nations, how much more will their fullness mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles insofar as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I celebrate my particular ministry so that, if possible, I can make my flesh jealous and save some of them. If their casting away, you see, means reconciliation for the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? These verses begin the main line of thought that goes through the rest of this chapter. Paul wants to make two main points here. First, that Israel's unbelief has opened the door for Gentiles to believe. And second, that Gentiles' belief could lead Israel to return. So while Israel has tripped up, as Paul puts it in verse 11, they haven't fallen completely because God is going to accomplish God's purposes through Israel, even so, even though they have tripped up. And since God accomplishing God's purposes through Israel was the whole point of them being the chosen people all along, they haven't fallen completely because God is going to, again, pull it through to the end. So, Paul is saying in verse 12 that by their stumbling over the stumbling stone, which is the metaphor Paul's reaching back to here, salvation has come to the nations. In the same way that Pharaoh's hardening heart uh, was the means by which God accomplished the miraculous salvation of the Exodus. So here, Israel's hardness of heart is the means by which salvation comes to the Gentiles. Israel doesn't hear, doesn't believe, and so the possibility breaks open for God's people to transcend the narrow, ethnically defined family that it had become stuck in. It becomes possible for God's family to include the whole world, which was what God had always intended. Also included in this is the reality that only if some faction of the Jews, and in particular the powerful ones, had rejected Jesus, only then would he have been handed over to Rome to be crucified, which is for Paul kind of a key part of this whole plan. Their stumbling led to Jesus' death and resurrection, which led to life 
for the whole world. That's the first part of Paul's point. Again, that salvation comes to the Gentiles because of Israel's unbelief. But it is Israel then, are they just the red shirts of the story, putting the narrative to die so that the true hero can take the stage? Not at all. Paul sees a further step in God's grand plans. The Gentiles coming in to enjoy the privileges of being God's family, surely that will cause Israel to become jealous. They see the Gentiles coming to the party, the one that they have chosen not to attend, and they begin to see the mistake that they've made. That's at least what Paul's hoping for, and what he says is God's hope as well. Paul makes clear in verse 14 that he's speaking to the Gentiles too. Although his discussion has been an Israel-centric one, he's making the case, one that perhaps we should hear too today, that the Gentile Christians in Rome ought to care about these questions as well. Paul sees his ministry as being the apostle to the Gentiles. Yes, with the hope that the Gentiles will respond to the gospel. And he sees this in a roundabout way as the means by which he himself, Paul, might participate in the saving of his flesh, meaning his fellow Jews, his relatives according to genetics. And speaking to the Gentiles reminds us also that when Paul is talking about Israel falling away, his words carry a second layer of meaning that's intended as a warning to the Gentiles as well. Don't you become arrogant about your own ethnic identity, pulling the reverse mistake of Israel. He expands upon this in the next verses, beginning in verse 16. Take another illustration. If the first fruits are holy, so is the whole lump. And another. If the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off... And you, a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and came to share the the root of the olive with its rich sap. Don't boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember this. It isn't you that supports the root, but the root that supports you. I know what you'll say next. Branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. That's all very well. They were broken off because of unbelief. But you stand firm by faith. Don't get big ideas about it. Instead, be afraid. After all, if God didn't spare the natural branches, he certainly won't spare you. Note carefully, then, that God is both kind and severe. He is severe to those who have fallen, but he is kind to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you, too, will be cut off. And they, too, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted back in. God is able, you see, to graft them back in. For if you were cut out of what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will they, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? And here we've arrived at the olive orchard. Well, first the first fruits in verse 16. This is a reference to Numbers 15.20, which is part of the description of the Old Testament festival called the feast of weeks sometimes. All we need to know about it for now is that a large batch of dough was mixed and a small bit of it was made into an offering cake before God so as to consecrate the whole batch. Paul has referred to Jesus as the first fruits in other places and that's probably what he's meaning here as well that Jesus is holy so therefore all who follow Jesus into the way of faith will likewise be holy whether Jew or Gentile. And then he begins talking about olive trees with branches being broken off and wild branches being grafted in, Jesus is, again, the root from which the branches receive their life. The natural branches are the Jews, the people of God from whom Jesus was born, genetically speaking. He is part of the Jewish tree. 
the wild branches are the Gentiles who have been grafted in and now become a part of this people of God tree. Paul makes clear that this is all done on the basis of faith. Those branches broken off are those who do not trust Jesus and so are no longer a part of God's people. The branches grafted in are those who have put their trust in Jesus and find themselves included in this worldwide family of God, inheriting all the promises that had been made to the original branches, Israel. To quote N.T. Wright, this is what happens if you regard yourself as automatically part of God's people instead of continuing by faith alone. Faith remains the only valid badge of membership. Anything else will lead inevitably to boasting. You can see in this passage that Paul gets explicit in his warning to the Gentiles that if God has done this to Israel, then clearly he can do it to you too. Just as the natural branches have been broken off, so you can be. We spent some time on this idea in the sermons the past couple of weeks, but this is just as much a warning for us today, I think. We seem to me to be in a moment in church history wherein it's becoming clear to what extent certain aspects of the quote-unquote church have ceased putting their trust in anything resembling Jesus and have instead put their trust in nationalism, violence, power, and other false gods. If God broke off the branches of Israel for putting their trust in, in some cases, exactly those idols, Paul would ask, how can the so-called church expect anything different? To paraphrase Paul, who said in the last chapter, not all who are Israel are in fact Israel. Today, we can say, not all who are the church are in fact the church. And the result for us is that we too shouldn't boast, but should be afraid. By which I think Paul means to take seriously the requirement that we remain in belief, that we remain in Jesus, as Jesus himself put it in John, when he compared his followers to a grapevine's branches, rather than an olive tree's, but to the same effect. We remain in Jesus and find life. One kind of humorous thing in the history of interpretation of this particular passage, which gives a bit of insight into the deficiencies of some Bible scholars, there have been some who have gleefully pointed out how Paul clearly was a city boy who didn't know anything about olive cultivation, and anyone today who has experience with the kind of growing and cultivating side of fruit trees might have spotted the very same mistake, I suppose. You see, wild branches would never be grafted into a cultivated rootstock. It's always the opposite. Breeding fruit trees is done to enhance the fruit, either the flavor, the look of it, the amount of it. And the consequence of that is that the rootstock is often neglected. It's deficient. It doesn't support the branches doing what the branches are supposed to do. That isn't what the particular trees are bred for. Grafting is done to take the branches that have been bred to have desirable fruit producing qualities and attach them onto a strong trunk full of vitality that can support those branches. You take the domestic branches, so to speak, and graft them into the wild rootstock, the opposite of Paul's image here. The scholars who have smugly pointed this out, however, make the surprisingly common mistake of not, you know, reading on for a couple more verses, because in verse 24, Paul very clearly says that all of this is contrary to nature. In fact, that's kind of Paul's point, that all of this is a surprising, counterintuitive miracle of grace, that it is not what you would expect. The number of times I have read an article or a book wherein an actual biblical scholar with a PhD and everything at a reputable institution of higher learning, published in a peer review journal or whatever, the number of times they seem to lack basic reading comprehension skills is astounding. And 
I think that's the charitable version of events because the other option is that they've intentionally ignored what the passage is plainly saying in order to have a provocative angle so that their article would get published. Anyway, one reason this is important is to recognize that Paul sees this all as miraculous and unexpected, which then is important for us to see what Paul is saying about Israel possibly being regrafted in because this is another impossibility in reality. In fact, it's possible that Gentile readers would have drawn this conclusion. Well, if the branches have been broken off, that's it then. They're dead, right? Not so. Just as God can do the bizarre but theoretically possible thing in grafting wild branches on, so God can do the impossible thing in grafting old broken off branches who have repented and returned to belief. God can, as verse 15 above said, bring life from the dead. The key in all this, again, is to remain in belief, to continue in his kindness, as verse 22 says. N.T. Wright puts it, In other words, maintain their position simply by trust in God, rather than by reliance on their own social, cultural, or ethnic status. If they do not, they in turn can perfectly easily be cut off. Paul then sums all this up in verses 25 to 32, before ending this third main section of the letter, as he did with the second section, with a short outburst of praise. So this is Romans 11, starting in verse 25. My dear brothers and sisters, you mustn't get the wrong idea and think too much of yourselves. That is why I don't want you to remain in ignorance of this mystery. A hardening has come for a time upon Israel until the fullness of the nations comes in. That is how all Israel shall be saved. As the Bible says, the deliverer will come from Zion and will turn away the ungodliness of Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them whenever I take away all their sins. As regards the good news, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards God's choice, they are beloved because of the patriarchs. God's gifts and God's call, you see, cannot be undone. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they have now disbelieved as well. In order that, through the mercy which has come your way, they too may now receive mercy. For God has shut up all people in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Paul returns to the idea of the Gentiles thinking too much of themselves. As we said in our first episode about this chapter 9 to 11 part of the book, there's good reason to believe that the dominant perspective in Rome on the Jewish people was what we would consider anti-Semitic and that the Roman Gentile Christians would have at the very least had sympathy for that perspective. Paul sees it as anti-gospel, and so takes very seriously the task of countering it. He did the same, by the way, when Peter and other Jewish Christians refused to eat with Gentile Christians, opposing them to their faces, as he puts it in Galatians, and not just in a, hey guys, I think maybe you should reconsider, but rather in a, you are acting in a way that calls into question whether you even understand and believe in the gospel of Jesus at all, so you need to change immediately or get out. Paul's consistent in his letters that the one family of God that transcends ethnic and national identities, and also gender identities and slave or free identities, that that one family is at the very heart of the gospel. This is how he ends this summary in verse 32. God has shut up all people in disobedience so that he might have mercy on all. The thing Paul wants the Gentile Romans to understand is that while Israel has fallen away for a while, That is not a permanent or universal thing. Any Jew who comes to believe and trust in Jesus will be grafted back on the tree. This is a mystery, 
Paul says. Not because it's something only the most holy or learned could understand, but, as N.T. Wright puts it, because it is an aspect of the long-range plan and purpose of God that has now been unveiled through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was not clear what God was up to until Jesus made it clear. And now the implications of what God's up to mean that neither Jew nor Gentile can boast over the other. Paul proceeds to quote, once again, Isaiah, this time Isaiah 59, 20, and 21, and then from Isaiah 27, he kind of mashes them together as he often does. And these predict a time when God's deliverer will come from Zion and will take away sins. Paul's clearly meaning Jesus here in alignment with all that he's said up until now. And then in verses 28 to 32, Paul sums up his argument from this chapter. Israel has largely fallen away, has not believed the good news, and is therefore an enemy of God in the sense of opposing his mysterious purposes. This has the result that the Gentiles have received mercy as they have come to believe. And this, in turn, by making Israel jealous, will, Paul hopes, result in mercy for the Jews as they see what they're missing and return to belief. This is why verse 32 serves as a one-sentence summary of both this section, chapters 9 to 11, and the whole letter so far. For God has shut up all people in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. That is, in a nutshell, what Paul has been arguing for all along, with some tangents and examples and implications along the way. Before we close this episode with a brief look at Paul's psalm of praise, there is one more thing we need to address. Verse 26 says that in this way, all Israel will be saved. We need to talk about the all in that verse, or maybe the Israel, actually. Perhaps you know about or have even been a part of churches that preach what's called dispensational theology. The crux of dispensationalism is that God has dealt with the world in fundamentally different ways at different eras in history, that God's plan has changed depending on which dispensation we are living in. This is not, as dispensationalists would want you to believe, the timeless, true with a capital T way of reading the Bible. It's basically a QAnon-style bizarro reading from the 19th century. It's Joseph Smith with his magic golden Mormon plates, just Christian. We're not going to get into all of dispensationalism today. That's a topic for another day. But this verse is part of one of the aspects of dispensationalism that has been surprisingly, again, bizarrely popular in conservative Christian circles. Orange County here in California has been a hotbed of it in particular. If you've ever wondered how support for the state of Israel became a central plank to conservative Christian faith, this verse is one of the answers, or rather a misreading of this verse is one of the answers. The dispensationalist reading of this is that when Paul says all Israel will be saved, he is referring to some future time, right before the final judgment, when all ethnic Jews will somehow be re-included in God's family. Apparently only that final generation of Jews get in, and none of the ten lost tribes who were conquered by Assyria and basically never heard from again. Not sure why they get left out, but because of this, God is then still supporting and protecting ethnic Israel. And so Christians also have to support ethnic Israel because, and this gets into misreading of Revelation too, but because Israel needs to literally be in control of the promised land before Jesus can return or some such magic thinking nonsense. You can tell I find all of this to be complete bullshit that doesn't stand up to even a simple attempt at reading what the Bible actually says. 
or rather it depends on reading the apparent surface-level meanings of isolated verses while ignoring whole themes of books of the Bible. This verse is a good example of that. Paul has spent pages arguing that the one characteristic that unites God's people is belief in Jesus. He has spent chapters laying out a case that the consistent story in the Old Testament is that a remnant stays faithful while most fall away. He has staked his understanding of the gospel on the fact that God does not base membership in God's family on ethnic identity, but rather on trust. When he says that all Israel will be saved, he could not possibly mean that all ethnic descendants from Abraham will somehow find themselves included in God's family no matter what they have trusted in the meantime. That would run counter to the entire book of Romans and Galatians and Jeremiah and Isaiah for that matter. The key to understanding this is to remember that not two chapters ago, Paul said, not all who are Israel are in fact Israel, meaning not all the genetic descendants of Abraham are in fact a part of God's people. The membership is based on trust, not genes. And we can remember that part of Paul's whole point in this letter is that the Gentiles who believe in Jesus are Israel in the important sense. They have been grafted onto the tree, enjoying all the privileges that once were reserved for the genetic descendants, but which God always intended to go beyond that. So God will save all Israel, the Jews and Gentile alike family who believe in Jesus and put their trust in him. That is what Paul means, not some hocus pocus about the end times and the rapture or whatever. Huh. Anyway, let's move on to how Paul ends this section with praise for the wisdom of the God who has thought all of this up. This is Romans eleven thirty three to 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. We cannot search his judgments. We cannot fathom his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has given him counsel? Who has given a gift to him which needs to be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. Glory to him forever. Amen. I think Paul knows how strange all this must have sounded for his first readers. And so he concludes reiterating God's sovereignty and inscrutability. N.T. Wright points out that Isaiah 40.13 asks, Who has known the mind of Yahweh? Before praising God's creative power which is what, of course, Paul has been describing in this letter. God creating a worldwide people out of nothing. And God's glory is a fitting place to end all of this. N.T. Wright puts it this way. To this God, Paul concludes, be glory forever. Amen. Giving glory to God was what humankind failed to do. That's Romans 1.21. Which was why humankind itself fell short of that glory. That's Romans 3.23. Abraham in faith gave glory to God. That's 4.20 believing that God was indeed able to keep the life-giving promises. Now, in hope, through the gospel of the Messiah Jesus, the glory is restored. That's 5.2 and 8.30. But the glory remains God's. God's to give, God's to be reflected back to God, God's own forever. So glory to God indeed. We'll stop there for this episode. We're three sections down, one to go. Next time, we'll launch into that final section of this letter, where Paul gets a bit more practical, looking at what all this means for how the church can live in the world. Next episode, we'll look at all of chapter 12 and then the first eight or so verses of chapter 13, so you can read ahead for that if you'd like. Thanks for joining me on this episode, and I will see you next time. Bye! Bye!